going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast. Cole and I are for the first time in probably four or five years, maybe. Yeah. We're recording uh, on a morning, a Saturday morning. Yeah, this is the morning edition. The morning <laughs> edition. So if we sound tired and, you know, less enthusiastic or even mo- more monotone as we normally do, uh, it's that's we're why. still waking up. It's because it's Saturday morning. <laughs> we won't tell you what time it is, but, <laughs> but we're still waking up. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a holiday week this week, which kind of threw off our normal recording schedule. So... Uh, Yep. Yeah, here we are, Saturday, then, yeah. Saturday morning. It was 4th of July, so we were both off work, I mean, family stuff. Then the next day, my, bro- my, uh, my brother, my, my, son's, <laughs> basically, basically my brother. Yeah, my son's first birthday. Then the next day is my wife and her twin sister's birthday. And so there's so much stuff is going on this week. Busy week. It's been a crazy one. Yeah, we were reminiscing that we used to record in the morning more often when we both had kind of odd schedules and had random days off and stuff. But no longer. We got nor- normal 8 to 5s. Yeah. So then we've got it down. Now we're mixing it up again. Yeah, mixing it up. Anyways, um, today is another accredited episode, and uh, thanks to our friends at FreeCE.com. And so for those of you who are already members of FreeCE, make sure that after you listen to this episode, you'll get a uh, password that will be given at some point throughout the episode. Use that. Go to FreeCE.com's website and click on this episode under the Learning tab, um, and you'll see podcasts listed as one of the options. Find this episode, put the code in, and you'll have access to the post-activity tab. Yes. Past that, you'll get one hour of continuing education credit for all of our pharmacists and nurses, uh, nursing listeners. So there you go. Thank you so much, uh, FreeC, for partnering with us again. And uh, if you guys haven't checked out FreeC by this point, and you've heard us mention it a hundred times, check check out their their website. <laughs> Do us a favor. You know, it's funny. I I will listen to podcasts for a really long time and hear the same sponsors over and over, and then it does sometimes take me forever to even go check out what the sponsor is. Yeah, so but I, you do do be, it. I do eventually. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's lots. That, so the marketing, that the marketing works. It does. Yeah. Uh, but what are we talking about today? We're going to be covering community-acquired pneumonia. Yes. Doing another overview of that because it's been a while, I think. It's been a long time. Not really any huge changes or anything, but we haven't really done one that's accredited, so we're trying to make sure we're bringing you all topics that you can get education credit for and still not be put to sleep. Yes. Hopefully. Yes. So, um, going so, through community-acquired pneumonia, what do you want to start? Yeah. So, we'll start with, you know, generally what it is. We're going to start from the beginning, which... Um, if you hear somebody reference walking pneumonia, that there a lot of times they're talking about community acquired pneumonia. Really, they're talking about a pneumonia that you don't have to go into the hospital for. You can you can go to an outpatient facility to be treated for it. Um, but the idea is that it's contracted outside of a healthcare facility versus <clears throat> if it's contracted inside, and it's called healthcare associated pneumonia. I think is the most updated. Or did they change that? So, so they've basically taken the term nosocomial pneumonia, and that's sort of like the umbrella term now for both hospital-acquired and ventilator-associated gotcha. pneumonia. So HAP and VAP are both under that nosocomial yes. sort of umbrella. So we will not be covering those today. We're just going to be focusing on community-acquired, which is uh, frequently what is seen in the outpatient ambulatory care setting. Um, often patients will present with fever, cough, a uh, productive cough with purulent sputum, um, and they may have pleuritic chest pain. Mm-hmm. Um, the workup generally may be, may be a chest X-ray, um, a CBC with differential CMP gas exchange, that sort of thing. And, you know, as far as sort of like the, the risk factors, because it is a very prevalent um, you know, disease state that I'm sure if you're working, whether it's urgent care, family medicine, internal medicine, you know, what, you're going to run into this at some point. 
Um, there's lots of risk, risk factors, though, that can um, increase the patient's risk of contracting pneumonia in the first place. So older age, obviously, you know, that being you know, 65 and over, a patient population is definitely going to be more at risk for various, you know, diseases, but pneumonia is uh, unfortunately one as well. Um, some chronic comorbidities, uh, specifically being the highest risk with um, COPD patients, so patients that have you know long-standing history of COPD that um, you know contract pneumonia. Uh, a lot of times they end up um, in the hospital and, and issues like that. So it's a pretty prevalent in that patient group. But also um, asthma, chronic heart disease, specifically you know heart failure, patients that have uncontrolled diabetes, immunocompromising conditions, things like that as well. Um, and then also. You know, patients who are smokers, um, alcohol overuse also um, can can put you at risk too. But uh, smoking is a, is a very big one that uh, can make the patient more at risk for contracting pneumonia in the first place. Right. <clears throat> I did want to mention some common pathogens um, that can cause community acquired pneumonia: gram positive, gram negative, and atypical pathogens can cause it, along with viruses. Um, gram positive would be strep pneumonia or um, MRSA, possibly, though that's uh, more uncommon. Gram-negative, H-flu, um, MCAT, um, and then Pseudomonas, which is more uncommon, but we'll talk about when we need to be concerned for that. And then atypicals like Chlamydia, Pneumonia, Legionella, Mycoplasma, and then various um, viruses as well. And uh, I thought it was kind of interesting, too, that when I, you, know, you think of the most common pathogen is strep pneumo, typically, but there, there's actually a pretty like strong decrease, especially in the United States of um, strep pneumo, you know, causing cap just because it pro pro most likely from our increased rates of um, vaccination with, you know, the various pneumonia vaccines we have now. But, um, you know, that's something that is starting to go decrease. They say it's still as high as 30% of cases of cap in Europe, but only down, it's down to like 10 to 15% in the United States, which is way lower than I would have expected. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That is interesting. And then also uh, there's an increased recognition of other respiratory viruses that are causing CAP um, or episodes of CAP. Uh, and then some of the other lower um, low overall rate of pathogen detection they, they also attribute. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting when I was kind of looking through some of this is that uh, – they, they, they had a, you know, kind of a theory of sort of the pathophysiology and, and the, the model for, you know, the, the, the progression of pneumonia. But I, I was starting to read up on the, lo the lung microbiome. Did, I wasn't familiar, like, with this really, I guess. I mean, I guess I just never really thought too much about it. I haven't spent too much time digging deeper into pneumonia. But were you aware of the lung microbiome? Usually I just think of the gut. Yeah, thought that was kind of interesting. But they were basically saying that's one of the, um, I guess, thoughts is that, you know, the, the lung microbiome can get altered with smoking and other, you know, conditions and things like that. And that actually could lead to uh, increased risks of developing pneumonia or even those, those bacteria becoming the causative pathogen if they're unchecked. And, I mean, it makes sense if you've got yeah. a positive microbiome and they're kind of fighting things off and then you alter it with i mean imagine systemic antibiotics can alter that just like they alter the gut microbiome too yeah so if they penetrate the lungs i guess not all of them do 
Yeah, it's um, pretty interesting. I didn't, uh, I, I don't know. It just seems like such a simple thing that I just hadn't really looked into. Yeah, I guess there's probably a microbiome in many places around our... Um, You'd think. <laughs> around our bio. Skin microbiome. We mi- should start Googling that. Skin microbiome. I just mean, take it, the entire rest of the episode to look right. up. <laughs> look up. Where, where else do we have microbiomes? Nasal <laughs> microbiomes? Yeah. Skin. <laughs> That's funny. Ocular microbiomes. But uh, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I never really thought about that. Interesting. Um, so I mentioned that if you call it walking pneumonia, a lot of times that's, you know, they don't have to be hospitalized, but you can definitely be hospitalized for um, a cap. And there are um, some ways to help stratify how severe a patient's case is to determine if they need to be treated inpatient or outpatient. I'll just mention one, um, which is um, the CURB 65 um, pneumonia severity index that you may have heard of. Um, and there's multiple um, or, I'm sorry, there's the pneumonia severity index and there's also the CURB-65. And in general, the pneumonia severity index is recommended over the CURB-65. Is that right? Yeah. And I mean, some people still use CURB-65 because it is definitely shorter. Um, but yeah, yeah, the the one that's technically preferred is the pneumonia severity index. So it's a tool that you can use and you examine a number of things related to risk factors, current findings, um, related, current lab findings, um, current... Uh, like neurologic exam findings and various vitals uh, to determine if they should be treated inpatient or outpatient. There's the pneumonia severity index that's used, and there is also the CURB-65. Yeah, so basically the with the pneumonia severity index, you're getting a score of 1 all the way down to 4, and the higher the score, the higher risk of mortality associated with the, the case of pneumonia. Um, and there's a huge jump from the class three up to up to five. So from class three, you have a 0.9% mortality rate uh, or risk. And then up to that jumps to 9.3% for class four, class five um, jumps all the way to 27%. So those class uh, four and five, especially are going to be ones that we need to watch a lot more closely and possibly inpatient. Yeah. And there's some, um, some of the findings are more significant than others, as in they add more points to the score, like arterial pH being below 7.35, altered mental status, respiratory rate greater than 30 um, per minute, um, or if they have an underlying neoplastic disease, all that is going to increase their risk for sure. All right. So the just to mention quickly, the CURB-65, if, if you are still using that um, scoring system uh, basically stands for confusion urea um, and the cutoff you're looking for in order to get a a, a point is um, greater than 19 milligrams per deciliter um, the r is respiratory rate so they're looking for 30 breaths a minute or more and then a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 diastolic less than 60 and then age is the uh, the last thing you're looking for and that's 65 years of age or older so each one of those things you get a point for and the more points you have, the worst. So the worst the situation. So do not get points if you can't help it. Yeah, even one point um, gives a 2% risk of death at 30 days, mm-hmm. which, you know, that babe. So basically if you're over 65 and you get pneumonia, you have a at least a 2% risk yeah. of death over the next 30 days. Yeah, and I think the the patients that they included in the in in the studies and stuff they kind of were used to formulate the curve sixty five. I think there's some some discrepancy with some of that. It's why the and, and also just kind of the simplicity of it, which is yeah. why I think the pneumonia severity index is preferred. But I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not necessarily. I don't work in the ED or anything, but that'd be a lot of be a lot. stuff to go through to calculate the old score. Right. I mean, to me, I imagine 
I mean, I don't know. It's probably institution specific, but if I was not feeling right about what the Curb 65 was telling me, then maybe I would dig a little deeper. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? For sure. Um, but then we have even more specificities that we can go into, and that's how severe, like once you've kind of established, um, okay, we're going to put them in the hospital setting or we're going to treat them outpatient. So obviously the lower um, pneumonia severity index scores would be outpatient. Once you start getting in the three or higher range, you're thinking hospital, and then you know five is potentially even um, ICU. Yeah. And the way you can kind of just determine the severity in order whether to put the patient in the ICU or not um, you, there is some criteria you can look at. So the two major criteria that would be, you know, making it, make a patient eligible to, um, to be in the ICU would be either septic shock, uh, with the need for vasopressors or respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. They also have some minor criteria. And, um, so for example, like confusion, disorientation would be one, um, uremia is, um, having a, uh, a BUN level of 20 or higher leukopenia, um, which would be a white blood cell count less than 4,000 thrombocytopenia, so on and so forth. So, um, there's, if you have three or more of those minor criteria, that would also be, um, or make the patient eligible to go into the ICU. I say eligible because I feel like that's more, <laughs> that's more uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you won. Oh, some. I'm eligible I'm to go eligible into the, to the ICU. ICU. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't sound as it's like you won. <laughs> you yeah. Won it, doesn't, it doesn't sound as sad. Um, yeah. So we're thinking, we're wondering, are we treating outpatient? Are we treating inpatient? And then are they going to the ICU? But there's another important thing to consider. And that is if they have risk factors for, um, or comorbidities um, that increase their risk for MRSA or pseudomonas, which we both know would um, cause us to treat differently. And we'll kind of talk about that. Um, so do they have a prior respiratory isolation of MRSA or pseudomonas? That would be important. Or have they had a recent hospitalization and receipt of um, parenteral IV antibiotics in the last 90 days? Both of those are risk factors for MRSA and pseudomonas. Um and then there's other comorbidities that can make things um, more complicated. Do they have chronic heart, lung, liver, renal disease? Do they have diabetes? Mike mentioned some of these before. Alcoholism, cancer, um, and asplenia are all important comorbidities to consider. And what I thought was kind of interesting is you know, the MRSA, for example, is definitely not, like Cole said, a, a commonly you know, a common cause of CAP. Um, we would think of it more along the lines of hospital-acquired, but... In the patients that do end up contracting community-acquired MRSA, um, it's we're typically thinking patients that are younger and, and healthier than our standard patient that has complications from, from CAP. And then um, also patients that may uh, have certain risk factors. And the one we always think of, like Cole said, is the you know past infection of MRSA. But what about patients who have play contact sports, um, patients who are living in like dorms or other like really crowded living conditions, mm-hmm. um, gyms, yeah, patients who um, do use IV drugs, things like that would all um, put a patient at higher risk for developing MRSA specifically. And if they do have a have a cap that's associated with that, it typically is more severe, can be even like necrotizing um, pneumonia, and, and they can, patients can be coughing up blood and um, more likely to develop septic shock, respiratory failure. So it's definitely something that we want to have on our radar, even though it is very, um, very unlikely that it's going to be causing it. But if the patient has any of these certain risk factors, then we need to keep that in mind. I'm amazed that there wasn't more like illnesses like that going around our football locker room because there were not things washed on any sort of a regular basis. I remember a guy getting a staph infection um, 
But, you know, like, and I remember there was a MRSA outbreak at our gym, not, not at this place, but when I was in college, there was, there was MRSA found at the gym. But um, it's amazing that there wasn't more, like, bad stuff that goes around when you just have disgusting boys who aren't yeah. washing things. or not cleaning know. things. Yeah, yeah, I know. I agree. They're pretty gross. So we'll talk about outpatient treatment first, um, and we'll talk about kind of the general recommendations, and then we'll talk more specifically about some of the drugs as a review. Um, but um, a couple antibiotics that are recommended in adult patients with CAP who are otherwise healthy. So this is outpatient treatment. Um, amoxicillin, one gram, three times a day, or doxycycline, one milligram, hundred milligrams twice daily. Um, if there is, um, if you can confirm the, if you can resistance com- rates if, are low, if you can confirm the resistance rates to macrolides are low, less than 25%, um, then you can use azithromycin 500 milligrams, like a Z-Pack day one, then 250 milligrams after that for a few days, or chlorithromycin 500 milligrams twice daily. Um, so I feel like with the update from a few years ago, amoxicillin one gram three times a day was being used a lot. And then doxycycline would kind of pop in if they had like a penicillin allergy or something like that. So I was just going to ask, like, what, out of those, if you're treating someone this that would fall into that otherwise healthy patient population, what would your go-to? I mean, I, I actually like doxy, I feel like. I like doxy, too. It's fine. Uh, amoxicillin, one gram three times a day. Just doesn't feel like, like, it doesn't feel like good enough. And I remember that being a concern because when I was learning this originally, that wasn't adequate, right? It was augmenting is right. what we were learning. Um, and then they updated it. It must have been like 2019 or 2020 or something, it, probably 2019. Yeah. And this is what they came out with. And I remember thinking the same thing. It just kind of feels wimpy, but. Yeah. Well, and even if, I mean, even if it's not even necessarily a wimpy thing of, of like the coverage, but just the side effect profile, even if they were equal. Yeah. I mean, doxy causes, causes of nausea, but you take it with food, it's usually not a big deal. Yeah. But amoxicillin a gram three times a day, you're having a rough week. It's a lot. Yeah. So, I, Though, I mean, maybe not as bad as augmenting, which they were, you know, was yeah. before. But, but yeah. So, doxy if in or amoxicillin, and then like Cole said, the azithromycin if you're feeling real daring. Yeah. Neither are, are expensive. Yeah. Um, of course, amoxicillin is probably much cheaper, even still. But yeah. Yeah. Does uh doesn't didn't Publix? I don't know. You may not know anymore, but does didn't Publix do away with like their free antibiotic stuff? I heard they did. Yeah. Oh, they did away with all their free stuff. I think. Uh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I heard they did. Cutting costs. I know. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> that that amoxicillin adds up. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about patients who do have some comorbidities, you know, that we had mentioned previously, you know, the, that may be a little bit higher risk for complications from pneumonia. Um, we're going to get a little bit more uh, aggressive with the treatment options. And you'll kind of notice how the, the, the medications that are listed here are kind of basically um, a little bit more broad spectrum, covering a lot of your uh, gram-negative bugs, your atypicals, things like that as well. So you you have two categories um, that you need to pick one drug from on each category. So we have our beta-lactam options, um, which is the first drug we're picking. So the examples they give are uh, um, augmentin, like Cole was talking about. Um, 875 twice a day usually is the dosing for the augmentin. Um, there's also cefpidoxime, 200 milligrams twice daily. Cefiroxime, 500 milligrams twice daily are, are two other cephalosporin options. And um, you basically would pick one of those three, and that's your, your beta-lactam option. Then you add, in addition to that, either... The Z-Pack uh, with the zithromycin, you can also use chlorithromycin technically, um, or doxycycline would be the one I probably would still go with just because 
again, there's, we, we have enough issues with azithromycin resistance. I don't, I feel like I don't really want to mess with that with pneumonia. Yeah. But you're picking one from that group as well and then adding it to the beta lactam. So they're going to be on two drugs for their duration of therapy. Um, and then if for whatever reason those aren't options, there are alternative options. This is for outpatients with CAP with comorbidities. Um, and that is the respiratory fluoroquinolone options, which um, I think I remember we had a um, an OS, like an OSCE thing, you know, when I was like a first year pharmacy student. And we were told to, ch- given a patient case and told to choose the treatment regimen. And I think I chose uh, a fluoroquinolone first. And um, it was Dr. Wirt was my, was my guy. He was <laughs> like, no, I would go with Augmentin because all these things can happen from fluoroquinolones. That was kind of what I learned. And then, of course, they updated the guidelines um, you know, a year after or so. But um, so the respiratory fluoroquinolones are an option, and those three are levofloxacin, moxifloxacin, and jimifloxacin. Levo would be 750 milligrams a day, moxifloxacin 400 a day, and jimifloxacin 320 milligrams. When's the last time you saw jimifloxacin? Never. Yeah, I saw moxifloxacin. One- I saw it one time, uh, and it was, I mean, at the time it was still, it may still be brand name. I haven't looked at it in so long. It was one time it was brand name, and then we ran it through the insurance, and insurance was like, no. Insurance was like, what are you doing? Yeah, no, nah, we're not going to do that. The insurance gave you a, a thumbs down emoji. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we didn't even know they communicated that way. But um, yeah, That was the rejection. That was the rejection, just nah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those those uh, are available options as well if you want to give a give the old fluoroquinolone a try. Of course, they have, you know, issues. So many issues. So many issues. Which, you know, we'll give you a quite nice little review on that in here in just a second, probably. Yes. Um, but to kind of go back through, this is more so just for the review aspect of it. Um, but we'll go back through some of these antibiotics, some of the adverse effects that we think of. Um, uh, this is all stuff you guys have seen before, but we'll mention it again. So um, from a, the beta-lactam standpoint, you know, our, our beta-lactamase inhibitor uh Beta-lactam combinations, like we just talked about with Augmentin, uh, is, is going to be uh, the standard option orally. If you're in the inpatient setting um, where you're, you have IV access, you may use ampicillin and sulfactam as an alternative uh, to the oral Augmentin. And then if you need more broad coverage that includes like pseudomonas coverage, then uh, Zosin, which is piperacillin, tazobactam combo. That's going to be the most broad spectrum of those extended spectrum penicillins. Now, uh, adverse effect-wise, when we think of beta-lactams in general, we're thinking GI upset, specifically diarrhea, um, is a big factor. Also very common to, to cause um, allergic reactions or at least a rash. Um, so penicillin is a very common uh, allergy to deal with. Uh, it can also increase LFTs over time. So if, if it's a patient who you know, you're doing a routine course, it's probably not going to be a big deal. Um, but uh, in the cases where you may have to use antibiotics long-term, that could be an issue. Um, then also monitoring uh, renal function. Uh, again, for more prolonged courses, this is going to be an issue, but you'd want to monitor the CBC and LFTs uh, if they are going to be on it for a long time. And then if their renal function at baseline is less than 30 mils per minute, um, avoid the amoxicillin 875 dose um, or any higher doses than that. So that would be a quick way to go on doxy instead of the gram of amoxicillin if their yeah. renal function is low. But, um, uh, yeah, so not nothing too crazy, but definitely uh, some the GI issues and things like that to warn people about. And then, of course, we have the cephalosporin antibiotics. We've already mentioned a couple. Um, Second-generation example would be cefuroxime, branded as ceftin. 
Um, it they these have pretty good coverage. Um, Cephalosporin covers um, Streptococcus staph, um, like MSSA plus Gram negatives, um, like Haemophilus, um, Neisseria, Proteus E. coli, and Klebsiella. Uh, then third generation group one like Cephalosporin. Um, covers uh, more resistant strep, also staph, also gram negatives. Um, and they have kind of standard concerns, similar concerns, GI upset, diarrhea, they're probably not as bad, um, possible allergic reactions, um, possible effects on liver function, and then um, possible cross-sensitivity with the penicillin allergy seems to be less than 10%. seems like every year it becomes less of a concern. So this is definitely something I wanted to mention, too, because I feel like this gets brought up a lot. And if when we think of, like, the cross-reaction, you know, the, the – the likelihood of it happening happening with the cephalosporin from someone who has a penicillin allergy it's it's very I mean, realistically it's probably way lower than ten percent, but the 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 data as far as the cross reactivity has only been really reported um, with beta lactams that have identical side chains or R groups whatever you want to call them, and so the basically if the patient has had a penicillin um, derivative that they were allergic to, as long as you're not using a cephalosporin that has identical side chains on the chemical structure, the patient will not most likely not have a allergic reaction to it. And so it's some examples of that. Um, amoxicillin, uh, if the patient is allergic to amoxicillin specifically, then cefadroxil, cefaprozole, um, and then cef, uh, cefatirazine are the other, the three that have identical side chains to amoxicillin. So those are the three you'd probably want to avoid because you're going to give, uh, most likely to have a react cross-reaction to They're that. not super commonly used anyway. Right, exactly. And, and amoxicillin is probably the most common penicillin like right. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and if they have an allergic reaction to ampicillin, um, then cephalaxin, which obviously is a much more commonly used option, that would be identical side chains to ampicillin. Um, or uh, cefaclor is another one that's not commonly used, but you'll see it every once in a while, um, that also has identical side chains to ampicillin. That's so, very interesting. That, yeah. makes, that makes some sense because my brother was telling me just the other day, he was like, I can't remember which um, cephalosporin it was, but he was like, did you know XYZ cephalosporin um, you don't have to worry about a penicillin allergy anymore. And I was like, really? Mm-hmm. You know? And he said, um, with their surgeries, they would, if there was a penicillin allergy, they'd switch to something. I can't remember what it was. Clindamycin maybe. Um, but if, if you made that switch, it gets a call from the pharmacy and they're like, oh, actually you want to do this cephalosporin instead. It's fine with a penicillin allergy. And he was like, okay, you know, that's just one of those interventions from the pharmacist. <laughs> um, but it, it feels like it kind of goes to that point, I would imagine. Yeah. Though I would, Possibly, I would hope that it would depends on which penicillin medication they're allergic to, but have, have it you kind of makes some sense. Have you seen that, uh, and we're getting way off topic now, but have you seen that, um, it, I think it came out this month, or maybe May, where it was, it, they, they call it the PenFast, the validated like tool for evaluation of penicillin allergies. No. Have you seen that? No. Um, I, it's on my to-do list of like things to read up on. Um, but it, there's some, it's called the pen fast if you want to take a look at it, but it's a new clinical decision-making tool that they have that's been validated now. Nice. So apparently that's for how to deal with penicillin allergies. That's great. So there you go. That's an additional, uh, things without having to do like skin testing and stuff. No, that's good. Cause they're, you know, among any clinician or pharmacist, there are varying degrees of comfortability with, um, with the use of, uh, you know, cephalosporins with 
it's not, you'll find people who'd be like, don't do it. And you'll find others that are like, I don't care about it at all. So <laughs> the, it'd be nice to have something that's a little more standard, the, standardized. This is off topic as well. But that way, you, when you said you'll find some people that are comfortable and some people not, it reminded me, I was in uh, bar and grill one time. This was years ago. And um, I was in bar and grill with, uh, for those of you who don't remember, that's like uh, patient case presentations that they do at um, the medical university for the college of pharmacy and Dr. Wayne Ward that's been on a couple of times mm-hmm. um, grills you for two hours on the patient <laughs> case and exp- you have to explain to him why you did what you did. It's, it's a good time. But uh, we were talking about like angioedema with an ACE and then switching them to an R, but they have heart failure and then that being okay and preferred in the guidelines and blah, blah, blah. So one of the physicians that was in there that time, she was a resident physician. She's like, well, you know, I feel like, You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone comfortable making that switch. And, like, without even Hmm. blinking, because I'd be comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. It's like, oh, no, we're about to have a (laughs) face-off. He's like, I would be comfortable. (laughs) But, anyways, that just popped in my head, so I figured I'd share. It's good stuff. All right, so macrolides. Let's talk about those real quick because uh, those are historically been probably the go-to, and for, maybe for some people, still the go-to option for treating, uh, you know, uncomplicated cap. Yep. But azithromycin is definitely the one that you'll see more commonly utilized in this in respiratory infections in general. Um, Chlorothromycin, technically, you could, but it's you know more drug-drug interactions, more side effects to worry about, things like that. So, so azithromycin is usually what they go with. And then erythromycin, ugh, forget that. Um, QT prolongation is a like a warning that will pop up whenever for you pharmacists that are um, filling prescriptions or if you're sending the prescription you know, with the EMR, it'll pop up with a, as a risk. The risk is much higher with erythromycin and the lowest with azithra. And so unless the patient has you know other issues with other medications that cause QT prolongation or has a history of QT prolongation already, low magnesium, other things like that that would put them at risk, um, then you're going to be most likely perfectly fine with that. You don't have to worry too much about the QT prolongation risk, but just for the short course. It's funny how certain places kind of get on kicks about certain things. Um, it made me think of it with my brother's institution, like stopping them from swapping with the penicillin and things. Mm-hmm. But when I was on rotation as a fourth year, I was at a, it was a independent community pharmacy. And I guess they had had some journal club where they talked about an article that showed like significant increased risk of death with, um, with, um, macrolides plus, Oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was some other very common medication. Fluoroquinolone. No, I, I think it was actually a blood pressure medication. Oh, um, like something like, Lasix or or lisinopril. It was something extremely common. Hmm. Whatever it was, it popped up all the time that the patients would be have that along with one of these macrolides. And so every time we would have to like call and like try to talk the doctor out of prescribing it, or just get like just make sure that they're aware that there's like an increased risk of death based on, like based on whatever this one this one study was. So they just went on this kick that every every single time they got one of these prescriptions, they dude, would, I know what they this would is do now. this. This was when this was in a hospital, right? This wasn't wasn't this when you were on rotation and it was the lisinopril and Bactrim. 
It might have been less than because, a colonoscopy because of the hyperkalemia risk. Yes, that might have been what it was. I remember you telling me that you. Go, I have to call every yes. single time, and I'm like, "Isn't it like three days of bathroom?" I'm like, yeah, they still make me call. Yes, I think it was. Dude, less, you're I feel right, like you were a student was, when that was going on. I was a student. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I yeah, recall yeah, that. You can't, right. I, it wasn't macrolides. It was lisinopril yeah. and bactrim. You, yeah. you told me you're like, I've called them this ten times. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I was like, oh my god. And the provider's like, no, I don't care. I want to do it. And yeah. I'm like, well, my preceptor says you can't. So what am I supposed to do? <laughs> my preceptor says you. You can't do that. Oh, yeah. that's rough. Yeah, yeah. that was a. That, I remember you telling me that. Now that's yeah. yeah. That's a strange one to like. That's a strange hill to die on. They, yeah, they, they, it's this happen. I, I just see this at a lot of different places. It'll people will will take something and that usually it's a, a safety concern, and then they right. just kind of like grip onto it, and like, may, yeah. maybe it's done with good intentions, but. Um, you know, think, things have to be a little more individualized. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Definitely something to have on the radar. Obviously, yes, yes, if you yes. notice potassium going up and they're on Bactrim for three months for a prostate sure. infection, that's one, you know, that's yeah. probably where it's And part on. of the study was that it was like, even with like a short course or whatever, it was yeah. still in whatever. I, yeah, they I latched onto that. They just latched onto Interesting. Um, interactions with macrolides, definitely more of a problem with erythromycin, clarithromycin. Uh, but azithromycin will get lumped in as far as the drug-drug interaction, you know, checkers that pop up automatically. But uh, for the most part, definitely has clinically f- um, less significant drug-drug interactions than um, the other two. But azithromycin, again, typically the one you run into. I'm impressed you remembered that. That was six years ago, probably. Yeah. I, it's, it's a curse, man. <laughs> <laughs> Your large brain is a curse. Oh, I, yeah, but the good thing was if, if I could remember like stuff that's important yeah. instead of just arbitrary facts about <laughs> right. random crap we talked about. Um, but, uh, yeah. Okay, so we talked about doxycycline, so just we'll refresh you on, on some um, concerns and things to be aware of with that. So it's typically not used in children under eight years old. Um, not used in pregnancy and not used in breastfeeding. Um, it can suppress bone growth. It can also discolor teeth permanently, more associated with like the old tetracycline, I think, but um, it's a possibility. Adverse effects, GI upset, skin reactions can make you more sensitive to the sun, um, and you want to take it with food um, for, for those purposes. also has um, uh, interactions with multivalent cations um, that can chelate it and inhibit the absorption, like, um, you know, calcium mm-hmm. and that sort of thing iron iron um, stuff that people normally would never think about so you want to take doxycycline two hours before or six hours after if you're doing a multivitamin or a supplement or something like that yeah absolutely you know it's the the not using doxycycline in children less than eight um this is a random thing that popped in my mind uh but i remember that came up and i was when i was on rotation as a fourth year with scott bragg actually and uh and I, I think it was like one of the first things i had talked to him about so i didn't realize the difference in level of knowledge at the time. I was like, I I know some stuff. I'm a fourth year Mm -hmm. and didn't realize I was about to get educated. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, so I made a, I was all proud of myself for coming up with that point about the eight, you know, the less than eight years old. And he's like, well, if we really needed to use it, would it be safe? I'm like, well, it says less less than Mm -hmm. eight. He's like, and he just sends me like nine papers on (laughs) like case reports of them having like certain situations where they have had to use it. And he's just like, Oh, you read through these. I was like, no, what have I done? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I even find my, I even find these issues come up with colleagues sometimes. Um, not, not any like significant negative way, but what will they'll see something and they're like, Oh, we can't do that. It's, you know, it's, it says we can't do that. It says we can't do that. But why can't you do that? And has it, has it been done like before, you know? And so it's, it's usually with, with them needing to try to make an intervention with the prescriber, 
when the prescriber feels strongly about doing something. And that isn't to say that you can't make positive interventions or, or whatever, but yeah, there is definitely nuance to even these like things that seem very black and white, like can't use less than eight years. Old. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. But what if you really needed to do right. that, you know? Yeah, no, I feel like uh, a lot of things are like that, that I feel like people get too nervous about. Yeah. Stuff. Meanwhile, it's under, it's understandable. I mean, if you're going to dispensing it, you're going to sign off on it, whatever, then, you know, you don't want to be the one you at least want to verify that mm-hmm. whoever's prescribing it is aware and get their reasoning behind it and things. That's, that's why I like to be in the clinic side, so I can be in the cutting edge. Yeah. And they're like, they're like, we've never tried this. Right, so they're like, asking you they're and like, saying like, hey, did you know you're not supposed to do this? And, and, I, go, like, and I, I go, and I go, I go, listen, we're doing experiments up in here. So don't, <laughs> don't worry about what we're doing. <laughs> we're truly practicing medicine. Here. I'm trying to get published, and I need a case report. <laughs> so then, this person volunteered. All right, fluoroquinolones, just to review briefly, um, levofloxacin, moxifloxacin, and gemofloxacin that Cole mentioned. You may notice that ciprofloxacin is not listed there. And this, I, I bring this up anytime I'm talking about fluoroquinolones with like some basic review stuff because I feel like when you hear the term respiratory fluoroquinolones, people get very confused between that and then having the fluoroquinolones that they think of when you're talking about like covering pseudomonas in the hospital setting and uh that's a different you know sort of thing you're looking for in that case yeah. versus respiratory bugs in general so like with ciprofloxacin you're not going to get the strep pneumo coverage anymore because of the resistance rates and things so not going to have strep pneumo coverage and um you, you don't have as good of some of the other gram-negative bugs either. So Levo, Moxie, Gemma, those are the ones that are considered like respiratory fluoroquinolones because they have the strep pneumo coverage as well. Now, all of those don't cover pseudomonas. Levofloxacin does. But uh, that's where, I don't know, I feel like that gets, I've answered that twice, I think, in this year so far in my PA class. So Yeah. Respiratory I've, is talking about where it can go. Yeah. But then coverage is what it kills. Right. So you can use ciprofloxacin for pneumonia in the when you're trying to cover pseudomonas in the hospital setting, but not normally in CAP. Right. So the box warnings with uh, fluoroquinolones, as you all know, are extensive. So we have the risk of tendon inflammation and even rupture, peripheral neuropathy that can last for months or even up to years, depending on how quickly the medication is stopped. Uh, it can lower patient's seizure threshold. Um, there's been case reports of causing toxic psychosis. And the list goes on. And even the more uh, commonly seen ad- adverse effects, GI issues, QT prolongation, um, the highest risk being with moxifloxacin. It can cause both hypo and hyperglycemia. So patients who are on a uh, in, you know insulin regimen or using sulfonylureas, um, uncontrolled uh, blood sugar already, they, those are patients that are going to be difficult to have, a, at least for any kind of long period of time, a, a fluoroquinolone on board. Um, photosensitivity, risk of musculoskeletal toxicity, skin reactions. So many things can go wrong with fluoroquinolones, and it's one of those things that uh, they're not ideal for first-line coverage for a lot of patients. The, the tendon rupture thing, have you ever run into that um, with anybody? No, not I feel like I've heard have. some anecdotes, but I don't think I've run into it with a patient myself. Because I've seen it twice, like actually like in patients that I've spoken with, and um, it, it was one of those things, the first time I happened, I was like, oh, Maybe it's not just a textbook. <laughs> so it does. And then the second time, it was somebody who was a runner, and their Achilles tendon just popped. Jeez. And uh, the only thing that was different was starting the antibiotic. So you think it's probably related. But, uh, yeah, so definitely uh, warn patients who are runners or athletes, you know, things like that, even if they look otherwise healthy, still give them a heads up about 
This box warnings yeah. just aren't great. I think I, I think I don't think about the seizure thing often enough. Um, it doesn't come up because it doesn't come up with my patients. Um, now that I think about it, but it's not always on the forefront of my mind. Yeah, no, me either. It's the thing I need to put in the old toolbox. Um, so that's outpatient treatment. Yep, right. That's outpatient treatment. We kind of already went through splitting up between healthy and patients with comorbidities. And as a reminder, the comorbidities that they classify are chronic heart disease, CKD, hepatic disease, diabetes, alcoholism, malignancy, and asplenia. Yes. Both physiological and anatomical asplenia. Yeah. Just yes. just thought that was cool to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Moving into inpatient treatment, um, and then inpatient is stratified into non-ICU, which or would non-severe, be non-severe yeah. treatment, um, and then severe treatment. So inpatient, non-severe treatment, um, we want different types of, of coverage, and we kind of have some slightly different concerns, right? So um, with beta-lactams, we could use ampicillin sulbactam that um, Mike mentioned earlier, or cefotaxime or ceftriaxone. And then we're also going to add on a um, macrolide like azithromycin or clarithromycin or doxycycline yeah. to the beta-lactam. And or to the um, um, the penicillin antibody. Yeah, and you can kind of see there that it basically just took the outpatient, you know, treatment options and just picked the ones that are most the most similar that have IV or IM access or you know administrative options. Yeah. And so the and it's more similar to like the the algorithm portion with the comorbidity. Right. Stuff. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Always going to be doing two meds in that, and um, with the exception of the, the fluoroquinolone, that you can also do a respiratory fluoroquinolone um, as monotherapy as well, assuming that it's non-severe, even if it is inpatient. Yes. So the, uh, the, the algorithm doesn't, doesn't change too much. What does change, though, as far as outpatient, inpatient, is, is the, the concern, obviously, for the getting cultures and, and what we need to start empirically potentially. And one thing to keep in mind, like Cole had brought up earlier is the risk of MRSA and the risk of pseudomonas in these patients. It's very you know rare to have these causing uh, community acquired pneumonia, but it can happen. And so you want to assess for patients who have had a recent hospitalization well, where they received IV antibiotics. And um, especially if it, you know, you know that there's, validated risk factors for MRSA at that institution that they received it at, um, that would definitely be, um, a, you know, a patient you would want to get cultures and make sure that they don't have an in, uh, infection with MRSA or pseudomonas. And um, you would typically, because it's non-severe, so they're not going to be like in the ICU or anything like that, then you would typically withhold coverage for both MRSA and for pseudomonas until you get a positive culture for either or you see like a positive nasal carriage and um uh for mrsa those would be reasons why you would then add on uh, or or change the therapy um depending on what you're treating uh, to after you get those cultures back but empirically you don't need to cover for it this feels like one of those um inpatient pharmacist interventions that they're probably always fighting with the the floor on because you know that they just get put on zosin like all yeah. the time and then they're they're like we don't act, they're like do they need that? And they're like, well, we'll put them on it. And they're like, yeah. well, 
well, well it could and then, the and, the pro- and then the problem is is then you're at the time you really dig your heels in you're like I'm, no I'm tired of getting bullied <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> today's the day today's the day I'm making an intervention Cole just come back it's like completely resistant to ampicillin so fast crap dang it this is a nightmare yeah. uh, that would be funny <laughs> that'd be one of those things where I would hate it for the person but it would still kind of make me laugh yeah. behind the scenes because yeah. it'd be like yeah that's what you get you'd hear him on the phone and you're sitting beside him just chuckling yeah. oh it is resistant oh okay and I'll go uh oh <laughs> All right, sorry. In, anyways, if the patient um, has had a prior, like, documented history of MRSA or Pseudomonas, at that point, it is okay to go ahead and add uh, or, or adjust coverage um, empirically, still get cultures, obviously. And then when those cultures come back, if they are negative for MRSA or Pseudomonas, you can de-escalate. Uh, but prior history of Pseudomonas, prior history of MRSA would indicate covering for whichever they had been infected with. You don't have to cover for both unless they actually had an infection with both, obviously. So what are our options for covering MRSA? Uh, we're basically adding therapy to whatever their baseline therapy is. Um, typically, vancomycin and linazolid are two good options um, that will uh, be added in addition to uh, their beta-lactam, azithromycin or beta-lactam doxy, whatever combo they're on. If they have pseudomonas um, that we're trying to cover for, uh, or they had a prior history of pseudomonas that we're trying to cover for empirically, then we would take the the beta-lactam part of their regiment, and we would basically substitute it out for a regimen that does cover pseudomonas. So, like Cole said, piptazo, very commonly seen that it's it's you know, broader spectrum than the sulf, the ampicillin sulfactam, including pseudomonas. So that would be one that you could switch to. Some of the cephalosporins, um, cefepime, ceftazidime, are uh, two cephalosporins you could potentially use. Um, maybe even a, a carbapenem, like imipenem or meripenem. Um, and then astreonam is also uh, potentially an option as well. And if the patient is, for whatever reason, being on the fluoroquinolone monotherapy option instead of the beta-lactam plus the additional agent, if they're using fluoroquinolone monotherapy, then you would just add one of these um, beta-lactams yeah, to their to their fluoroquinolone. Yes. But again, remember to de-escalate when the cultures come back. Yeah. And so that's kind of the whole, the whole idea behind starting with something that's less broad spectrum and then moving to something that's more broad spectrum is to prevent resistance and then de-escalating if you figure out exactly what it is but then if somebody's high risk for MRSA or pseudomonas then we're going to automatically start with empiric therapy right and then confirm okay so we'll review some of these drugs um, and then we'll talk about what we do in severe cases but before we do that Ooh. let's give the password one of us always forgets to do the password yes. every time it seems like, like we alternate who remembers right so I'm very proud of myself. I was, I was, was going to do it in between the inpatient and outpatient thing. I thought that was a good break. Your brain works point. well at, at early in the morning. Apparently. Oh, so man. Mine does say not. So. so the password uh, for today's activity or post-activity test is going to be CAP23, C-A-P-23. Yes. For community-acquired pneumonia happening in 2023. Oh, is that what that means? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. No, no problem. So there you go. Um, but, uh, anyways, back to you, Cole. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Um, Dude, my name's not Tim. <laughs> uh, okay. So we'll talk about some of the other cephalosporins. We also have third generation and fourth generation. Um, so a couple third generation options are, um, which these are group two. We talked about one group one, which, um, 
it's not really. No, I mentioned, yeah, yeah. I mentioned ceftazidime and yeah. ceftazidime already, just not the combos. doesn't really matter for, um, okay, so you've already mentioned mentioned these. So the combo of ceftazidime and abibactam um, covers uh, multidrug-resistant pseudomonas and other multidrug-resistant gram-negative organisms. Um, and uh, just to piggyback on ceftazidime, covers pseudomonas but doesn't have as much gram-positive activity. Also has an IV and IM option. Um, and then cefepime, like you talked about, covers some more resistant strep, staph, gram negatives, um, as well as pseudomonas. Yeah. And in the, the combos of the cephalosporin with the beta-lactamase inhibitor, so like ceftazidime, avabactam, you're, you're, those are not empiric options, obviously. With cefepime, ceftazidime would be good. If the cultures come back and you find out that they're, it's resist, it is pseudomonas, it is resistant to multiple drugs, then at that point, you know, you could consider, or if it is some random other negative bug, then you can. But I think your hospital administration would probably excommunicate you if you tried to use an expensive drug like that empirically. Doesn't it kind of stink that the the pharmacists have to be like the I don't know what the word is like gatekeepers, the gatekeepers, the nags, the policemen of these issues? Like these things will come through, and then if like if I'm a provider on the floor and I'm getting a call from pharmacy, I'm like. Uh, right know, like yeah, yeah they're yeah. gonna tell me i'm doing something wrong like, you know i wish it could be it's not like that in, in the where i work i just don't yeah. have this position but i, like I feel like say, in this, i like how you save that yeah i feel like in <laughs> all this, my providers right, are awesome. no, i mean it, we have it just it's yeah, a different yeah, yeah. Yeah, different can, thing we do but right. it, in these situations i do i do I kind of it's a bummer that it has to be that way it know? is yeah it is tough and then but then also they have the authority to just completely override that anyway if they right, want it. so it's right. kind of like well yeah <laughs> yeah kind of yeah. yeah anyways i'll leave it at that before i make fun of my own profession <laughs> <laughs> um carbapenems uh, very broad spectrum uh, beta lactams and typically again we're saving these more so for our drug resistant or multi-drug resistant infections that we would consider like extended spectrum beta lactamases um and they they do cover pseudomonas as well, with the exception of ertapenem doesn't typically have good coverage of pseudomonas, um, and it doesn't have any like atypical or any of them don't have atypical coverage or MRSA or anything like that. Um, so a lot of times carbapenems are are kind of saved for other situations um, that uh, again when you instead of empirically, but can be uh, a useful tool. Obviously, yep. um, some interactions to think of. Um, Carbapenems can decrease uh, the concentrations of a patient who's taking valproic acid. And uh, so if they're using that for uh, you know, seizure control, uh, even, I guess, mood stabilization as well, and for psych patients, you, know, you could lose some of that, uh, that control of their epilepsy or control of their, their mood or whatever they're using it for. Um, also, if um, a patient who is on other medications that can lower the seizure threshold, you want to probably cautious with that and um the the patients that uh you know you do put on this the diarrhea and gi issues not going to go away that's are still prevalent with these as well and um the the seizure risk especially in patients that have impaired renal function uh, the, the highest likelihood with that is you know, typically you think of the imipenem but uh, it is something that, that can happen so just be aware of your patient's uh, medical history yeah Another drug we mentioned was estreonam, which is classified as a monobactam, a little bit different. It does have a mechanism of action that's similar to penicillins. It inhibits bacterial cell wall synthesis and covers gram-negative organisms, uh, but does cover pseudomonas. Um, it doesn't have gram-positive or anaerobic activity. It's fine to use with a penicillin allergy, even though the um, mechanism is similar. 
and it's available as an IV formulation. Um, interestingly, for cystic fibrosis, it also has an inhaled formulation, uh, but similar kind of GI adverse effects, um, as well as some possible effects on LFTs. And then uh, we have vancomycin, and uh, we know in this case we're, we're using this for its excellent coverage of MRSA and, and strep as well. Um, some adverse effects uh, can cause nephrotoxicity, um, can cause ototoxicity, and, and even uh, issues with infusion reactions um, where the patient gets very, very flushed. And uh, patients who are going to be on bank um, do need to have their, their renal uh, function uh, assessed and adjusted, and potentially the dose adjusted depending on their um, renal function if they have CKD. And then also when you have a patient on bank, we're using caution when we're considering other potentially nephrotoxic drugs, loop diuretics, NSAIDs, um, cyclosporin, things like that. Hopefully you're not trying to manage anything like that um, in a situation where you have, you're just trying to focus on the pneumonia, but you never know. Yeah, it happens, I'm sure. Um, and then lastly, we have linazolid, uh, which uh, its mechanism it inhibits um, RNA-dependent protein synthesis by binding to the uh, 50S ribosomal subunit. But it has um, some effects on um, uh, platelets as well as hemoglobin and white blood cells that can decrease those. Um, it can also increase serotonin levels and blood pressure when used with adrenergic drugs, other adrenergic drugs. Its coverage is very similar to vancomycin, but it also covers um, VRE. All right. So what about patients who are classified as severe? You know, they're going to potentially be in the ICU being treated. Uh, the, the guideline really doesn't change too much as far as patients who we don't need to think about the uh, MRSA or the um, pseudomonas being a risk factor, the the baseline therapies are about the same. So ampicillin, uh, sulfbactam, or you can use cefotaxime or ceftriaxone plus one of the macrolides or doxy. The other option being the same list of beta-lactams or the addition of fluoroquinolone, uh, moxie, or levo, and uh, it, it, no more option at all for monotherapy with the fluoroquinolone in this patient population. Yes. Um, but if they have uh, risk factors for MRSA, um, uh, so they've had a recent hospitalization in IV antibiotics and there is a local um, validated risk factors for MRSA, or they have prior MRSA infection, then you would need to add more um, impure coverage for that. So vancomycin or linazolid. I think this is the part that always confused me initially was this the difference between severe and non-severe because non-severe if they've had a recent hospitalization in IV antibiotics that's the risk factor so you're looking for pseudomonas you're not pre-treating I see and then with the prior history you know that then you would pre-treat but in this case whether it's prior history or just recent hospitalization with IV drug you're going to pre-treat right so I don't know for, for whatever reason my brain like had a hard time like remembering that part but basically before you confirm if there's risk you're going ahead and treat if it's severe if it's severe yeah and then you That's can add, do the same method of adding the bank or linazolid, and, and then can, de-escalate when the cultures come back. Right. You can still check the nasal carriage or cultures, and you can still de-escalate. So that's MRSA. Um, with pseudomonas, if they've had a recent hospitalization in IV antibiotics and there is a local validated risk factor for pseudomonas um, or prior pseudomonas infection, so very similar to MRSA, substitute the beta-lactam with either zosin, which is piptazo, 
cefepine, ceftazidime, imipenem, celastin, mirapenem, mirastrinam. So something that'll cover pseudomonas. So is that similar mm-hmm. where yeah, yeah. to the MRSA where you yep. wouldn't, in, in non-severe, if it's just the risk factor, you wouldn't go ahead and empirically treat. You'd wait for the cultures to come back. In, in non-severe, yeah. In non-severe. So in, yeah, and then severe, you would go ahead and just sub out that uh, beta-lactam. Gotcha. Or, or the monobactam. Yeah. So last but not least, um, viral cap. Um, we have a few different treatment options for this, and we'll kind of breeze through these. But we have our ulcitamivir, which is the one we probably would are all the most familiar with. And then uh, we also have, which I, this would not be an option that I would I would go for, but uh, zanavivir um, or relenza. Um, for those of you who don't remember, that's the inhaled powder antiviral that uh, we would use for influenza and things. Have you, when's the last time you saw that? Never. Never? Yeah, me either. Last thing, <laughs> my chest is hurting so bad every time I breathe in. Can I have a dry powdered <laughs> inhaler that I can scorch, <laughs> my, scorch my lungs with? <laughs> um, and then we also have an IV option as well, the, um, the para paramervir um, is another one that's used off-label sometimes um, in patients who have... Um, lack of GI absorption or, or experiencing septic shock, um, that can be an option as well. Is the, um, is the sefluza not an option in this instance? I don't know that they've, um, they, I, I'm sure it's used in certain situations like off-label, but I don't know of any. doesn't have like yeah, Don't hold me to that, everyone, but uh, I don't know that uh, they've had too much, uh, too much data supporting its use in pneumonia at this point. And apparently, the, I could be wrong about that. the inhaled powder has some activity against Tamiflu resistant strains. So mm-hmm. maybe if that was, you know, yeah, if we felt like that was a concern, then we would scorch their lungs with the, with the zanamivir. <laughs> yeah, I don't care how bad your lungs hurt. You <laughs> you breathe this powder in breathe now. now. So that's uh that's kind of what we got for community acquired pneumonia. Do we have anything else we got to cover with this? I think that's a pretty good uh, pretty good review of it. You always think it's a good review. I know. We'll check on Reddit to find out for sure. <laughs> find that one guy. Yeah. Hey, what did you think? Was it it's pretty high, good for was, non- it high, was it high level? Pretty good for non residency trained individuals. <laughs> <laughs> you said we weren't going to call them out, and you did it anyway. Um, their lack of uh, additional experience is definitely obvious. <laughs> like, okay, guy. You know, for us, us mentioning this, it's you know, it, it's been multiple weeks since we've mentioned it, but for someone else listening to the episodes they're in like, tandem, it's like, like the last episode we really mentioned got this. Their feelings, but it feels really got it. Hurt seems by like them. we talk about it all the time. No, it's, <laughs> it's pretty, literally we don't talk about it outside of no, no, no. actively recording. Or if the we podcast. do, it's it's because we think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, for those of you who are thinking our feelings are actually hurt, we're good. We're we're emotionally we'll, stable. We'll but, I mean, I was pretty hurt by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, initially, obviously, I had to but I've been seen a therapist about it. You didn't hear me weeping off air. Right, right. It's like, I tried my best. <laughs> just couldn't cut it. I just couldn't cut it. Oh, Reddit. Don't ever look yourself up on Reddit. <laughs> but uh, anyways, guys, well, appreciate you, all of you who, who don't leave mean comments about us on Reddit and, uh, and for listening. And um, thanks to, to FreeCE.com for continuing to partner with us. And uh, also, if you haven't checked out Pearls, um, our, uh, the, the main sponsor that we've had for a long time with the podcast, and uh, they have a nice community-acquired pneumonia flow, sh- flow chart algorithm thing that you can look at. And um, they've, they're posting so much new content now, it's kind of crazy how much stuff they're, they're cranking out. So definitely check them out, pearls.com slash coreconsultrx. And then for those of you who like more traditional style lecture, you know, PowerPoint slides, all that good stuff, check out the Patreon account. Um, so it's patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. And uh, we have a lot of different lectures and PowerPoint slides. There's thousands of PowerPoint slides on there. And it's like $3 a month or like $30 for a year. So you get access to all of it. You can download the slides. 
And then, um, yeah, so check that out. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have any questions or anything for us, definitely send us a message uh, you know, on social media or the phone number or the uh, email in the show notes, and we'll get back to you as quick as we can. Thank you guys. Have a great one and enjoy your, your weekend. For those of you, uh, you know, you won't hear this till Monday at least, but I hope you had a good week. <laughs> yeah, I hope it was a good weekend. <laughs> we're going to try to have a good week. Yeah, weekend. we're going to go try. All right, guys. Bye.